Well, good morning. It's great to have everybody here. It's great to have you joining us online. I got to be honest, we've got new cameras. The other ones were breaking, and right now they don't have red lights on them, which one's on, so I have no idea who I'm talking to. I don't know which camera to look at. It might be you, it might be you, it might be you. I have no idea. So I'm going to look in the middle, and you'll know I'm talking to you. But it's great to have you online that are joining us, and any way that you join us, however works for you, is great with us. About 20 years ago, my wife and I, in our master bathroom, had a, a drawer in the middle of our vanity break, and it broke in such a way that it just sort of just dropped down. And so the, the front was there, but it was kind of dropped down, and the whole drawer dropped. So anytime we wanted to get the drawer below it open, we had to kind of take this out, put it straight, and then open that drawer. And I and my wife are like zero skilled when it comes to fixing things like that. And so in spite of the fact that it was a hassle, we just didn't know what else to do, and so we just sort of got used to it. And 20 years went by where we just got used to just the broken drawer in the bathroom. We just sort of learned to live with it. A friend of mine said he could come over and fix it. So, you know, 20 years later, he comes over. I'm thinking, well, you know, it's going to, I don't know, we're going to have to get a new vanity or something. And so he comes over, and he's, he fixes it in five, literally five minutes. I, he asked for a tool. I just had to give him, like, a screwdriver. And he fixes it in five minutes, and it was just like smooth as butter, worked perfectly, and we're like, heck, I mean, I wish we would have fixed that 20 years ago. And my wife and I were sort of talking like, you know, it's sort of funny that way, that, that you go through even our lives. We go through our lives, and everything's out of whack, and we just sort of get used to it, and we're not sure how to fix it. And, and it, it's almost as if you know, if, if there was one thing that you could fix in your life that would make a big difference, but you just don't know how to, you just got used to living it, it's been 20 years, it's been however many years, you're just sort of in it, but if you could fix one thing that would make a huge difference, what would that be? What would that, what would that be for your life? And I think that kind of question is what we come away with. When we look at the passage we're going to look at today in the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John in chapter 18. Now, in this story where we are in the Gospel of John, it's during Passover. And it's the last weekend of Jesus' life. This is, a, this is a, the last night he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified. And so this is where we're picking up in the story and so John just picks up in chapter 18, verse 1, says, When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So probably a walled garden. They went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. The great thing about the Bible is it often mentions names, gives dates, specifies geographical locations, and that's what we have here, a geographical location, very specifically. We can look right now at photos of where this story took place. And so if we stood on top of the Mount of Olives and looked down into this valley up to the old city of Jerusalem, down in this valley is the Kidron Valley, and so according to John's description... The garden that Jesus loved to go into with his disciples whenever he was in Jerusalem is right around here. It's down in this valley, probably up the slope a little bit on the Mount of Olives, because the, uh, 
Matthew and Mark say that this garden is called Gethsemane, which means uh, an uh, olive press, so it's probably an olive tree garden. And so now we can see this is probably where that was. It's an old olive tree garden, very old olive trees that are there. This is probably, it may not be, but I think probably the garden where Jesus loved to go with his disciples. And he was so frequently going there that John says that Judas knew he'd be there and that Jesus, we know, specifically went there because he knew that if he went there, Judas would find him. And that's what he intended. So John goes on and says in verse 3, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. Now, just to get technical, this, is, this, this phrase right here, detachment of soldiers, in the Greek language this was originally written in, is actually a transliteration of a Latin phrase that means a cohort of Roman soldiers. So these are Roman soldiers, lots of Roman soldiers in town for Passover weekend, Passover week, because trying to keep the peace, make sure nothing happens. And so there's a bunch of soldiers, and he says some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So this is at night, they've got their lanterns, they've got their swords. This is a, this is a, a dangerous group that's coming to arrest Jesus, coming to kill Jesus. That's the whole point. That's the purpose. And so it says, John says in verse 4, Jesus... And he says this phrase a lot, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Then John says something really strange in verse 6. Look what John says. He says, when Jesus said, I am he, all these soldiers with their weapons and torches and all these Roman soldiers, they drew back and fell to the ground. What? And he doesn't, he doesn't explain it. He just kind of says it and moves on. And then Jesus starts over, gives them another chance to have their big moment. So Jesus says, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And now look at verse 10. It says this. It says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword. Now, that doesn't mean like necessarily a big sword. It could be a dagger. But if you know Peter in the Gospels, you're not surprised that he might be packing a sword somewhere. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Now, he's going after this big mama Roman soldier. It's probably not going to go well. But he strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, and then John says the servant's name was Malchus. It's interesting because most people, when you look at literature of antiquity and you're trying to decide, is this something true? One of the signs you look for is just signs of detail that show memory, that is not necessarily advancing the narrative of the story. Knowing the name of Malchus, knowing the name of the servant whose ear was cut off, that's not important to the story, but John is the only gospel account, all these all the gospel accounts have this story, but John's the only one who says the name because probably, like Luke says in chapter 22, that Jesus healed his ear. Probably that was a big moment for Malchus. Malchus may have been around for a while. John may have gotten to know Malchus, and so John knows Malchus, and he says his name is Malchus because he's remembering the story, and it really happened, and he knows Malchus. But here's what's interesting. Peter is the insider of this 
band of disciples. He's going to become one of the paramount leaders in the early church. And he spent three years listening to the teachings of Jesus. I mean, think of all the teachings of Jesus. And Peter's right there in the front row. And everything Jesus said, Peter heard. And now we have a moment where it's, albeit an emotional moment, a trying moment, and the first thing Peter does is an act of violence. It's not very Jesus-like. And it's interesting because it it, it just kind of shows that it's not going to be the last time that a leader in the Christian church is going to resort resort to un-Jesus-like behavior that brings embarrassment on Jesus and brings embarrassment on Christians. But that reality is baked right in the very story of the gospel. From the earliest parts, it's, it's right there, this happens. And I say that because if, if, if the failure of Christian leaders is, has caused you to maybe leave your faith in Jesus or lose your faith in Jesus, maybe that's because you haven't been reading the right story. Because that's built right in. The only Christ-like person in the Bible, the only Jesus-like person in the Bible is Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised, although we are disappointed, when this happens. But then verse 11, John goes on and says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. So he rebukes Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now Jesus isn't talking about a cup. That's a phrase that was an Old Testament poetic euphemism that meant suffering and often usually meant suffering by the judgment of God for sin. Now, what's Jesus saying? Because we know Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life and didn't sin. And Jesus is yet saying, should I not bear the judgment that the Father has for me? Already Jesus is talking here about something he'd been saying all throughout his teaching, that in some way, Jesus is going to bear the judgment of God in some way for his people. Now, he's obviously talking about his death that's coming. And it's interesting because this is an idea that more and more is kind of becoming offensive to our... We just, we just don't really have that view of God anymore, that he's going to demand some sort of sacrifice as a judgment, that the judgment that would be ours, that Jesus would stand in our place and take the judgment of God for us, doesn't, sounds like more of an archaic picture of God and not a modern picture of God, partly because we just don't think of God that way. And the other part is we don't think of ourselves as needing something like that. We're not that bad. We're pretty good, mostly. And it's interesting because at the same time, we live more and more in a culture that's demanding justice from those who have committed wrongs in the past. But somehow we don't expect God to be that. It's it's weird. It's a weird kind of contradiction. We, We expect that more and more culturally, but we don't expect God to be that way. But I think something else is happening here, and that is more than just God putting the, the, the wrath of God on Jesus instead of us. There's something happening, and that's true, but in a larger story. And we're introduced to that aspect of the story in this story in chapter 13. Because this story in the Gospel of John, this night is a long night. It starts in chapter 13. Here we're in chapter 18, but it's the same night. And so in chapter 13, verse 2, really interesting phrase, 
where John says this about Judas, and this is the Judas who betrayed Jesus. He says, the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, not Keith Simon, don't be confused. Uh, He had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And then he's going to say in verse 27 that Satan entered into Judas, and Judas went out to go betray Jesus. So we're introduced in this story to another character that we can't see, called the devil, called Satan, that's part of this story. In some way, there's a larger unseen story at play here that is also in that realm, in this larger spiritual realm, this story that's bigger than just the human story that's parallel to the human story is a place also where righteousness and evil and justice and judgment really matter. And somehow Jesus' death is going to be a big decisive deal in that story as well. So verse 12, then the next verse, last verse we're going to look at in this story, John says this, then the detachment of soldiers, the Roman cohort with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. So we know from what John says in chapter 13 that there's an unseen character in this story that is behind the scenes prompting these people to try to to kill Jesus. And they're, they're going to succeed. They're going to kill Jesus. The devil wanted to kill God's Messiah, and and he does it. But God has this bigger plan the whole time. And it's been prophesied in the Old Testament. God always has a bigger plan. We always get confused. Why does God allow evil? Well, at least in this story, God has a bigger plan. And so we see Jesus in complete control of the night. He goes out. He's the one asking the questions. This big cohort of Roman soldiers with their weapons and torches come, and he's the one asking the questions. Who is it you want? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I am he. And this whole thing falls, they fall back to the ground. But yet, eventually, he just simply, again, he lets them arrest him, bind him, take him, beat him, crucify him. Because God has a bigger plan. Let's look more closely how it happens. It's really interesting if we just stop, ask ourselves a few questions. It says in verse 4, let's go back again. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, his being beaten, his being arrested, beaten, crucified, all that, knowing all this is about to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Now you know what's going on here, right? I just have this in yellow because in the Greek language this was written in, it doesn't have the word he. English translators do it because it's good grammar. You know, you have your copulative verb with your predicate nominative, and it makes sense. But that's not what's in the Greek. It just simply says, I am. Now, Jesus is bringing up this name that God routinely calls himself in the Old Testament. I am. So that's, and John says in verse 6 then, so when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, now I don't know what's happening here. I mean, they drew back, 
They fell to the ground. It's almost like some door opened from another dimension. And for a minute, some other reality came in. And the minute Jesus said, I am, it's almost like a scene in a movie. They just suddenly drew back all these soldiers and fell to the ground. And then Jesus, probably while they're still on the ground, probably while they're trying to get themselves together, you know, kind of get their uniform straightened out again and kind of get back up, Jesus says, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he says, I am. Now, what's going on here? Why is Jesus making, him, making them say, who is it you want, so that he can say, I am, twice? I am, and three times in this passage, they fall back on the ground. I mean, what's going on? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but I think a biblically educated guess, just because of what we read in chapter 13, is that what's going on here is part of that bigger unseen realm that the Bible talks about. Something happening in that that has a lot to do with this story. Because see, if we go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that's where God is sending Moses to free the Israelites from their slavery to the Egyptians. And God says in chapter 3, verse 14, tell them, I am sent you. And then in, also in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, God keeps putting those words in his lips, I am, I am, in direct contrast to the false gods in the, in the days of Isaiah. So both in the Exodus passage and in the Isaiah passage, when God keeps repeating his name, I am, it's in the context against the false gods. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. The Bible never says false gods aren't real. They're quite real, according to the Bible. They're just false. They're pretending to be a god that they're not. And so that's why God keeps saying, I am. He's saying, I am the source of all existence. I am the giver of all life. I am the one that has created everything, even these false gods. Everything is part of my creation. And the false gods were in rebellion against God, simultaneous to human rebellion against God. This is the biblical story. So that... This is happening in Passover, right? This story with Jesus. If we go back to the very first Passover, and we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, when God is giving the first Passover, he says to take a lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood, put it on your doorpost, and I will pass over that house when I bring judgment on everyone. He says this, I will pass through Egypt, and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And look at the phrase. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am. He is. That's what this is translating God's name Yahweh, which was the ancient Hebrew word for he is. I am. He is. And I'm going to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. That's what was shown in Passover, and that's what was foreshadowed that it's happening on this ultimate Passover where God has become 
The I am has become human and is offering himself as the ultimate and true and eternal Passover lamb. So that's what the New Testament says. Just bear with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, this is somehow the story of the Bible that's bigger than just the human events. And that in some way, the death and resurrection of Jesus as the eternal Passover lamb, in some way not just takes the judgment of God in our place, but it also frees humanity and frees the world from its bondage to the false gods. I don't know all of how that is working, but that's the story that's taking place here. So when Jesus says, I am, and they fall back to the ground, these people that are being motivated, we know from the story, by Satan. They're being motivated by the false gods. They're arriving with their torches, their weapons. They're arriving as an army of pagan soldiers. They're arriving as officials that Jesus in chapter 8 had called children of the devil. They're arriving to kill Jesus. And Jesus willingly lets himself be killed by them as the Passover lamb because that will ultimately bring judgment on the false gods and free those who are his from God's judgment. So let's go back to that question. If you could fix one thing in your life that would make the biggest difference, make the biggest change for you, you know, maybe you're thinking, you know, I want to exercise more. I want to I eat better. I want to uh, watch less TV, read more. All those things are great. But I wonder if the real answer to that question is in the question that Jesus repeated twice in our passage. When he says, asks, who is it you want? Think about it. Who is it you want? more than Jesus. See, because the Bible says the false gods hide. They hide behind whatever it is that we want more than Jesus, and that's how they enslave us. That's how they control us. They hide behind whatever it is you want more than Jesus. Whatever you pursue more for your sense of value, your sense of significance, your sense of meaning in life, what your life is about. Whatever you want more with your money that God has given you. Whose approval you want more than the approval of the I am. Whatever is more important to you to spend your work on, to sacrifice your time for, to take the majority of your best time, whatever that is more to you worth than the I am. Whatever it is you want more than Jesus is what's always going to enslave you and never give you more. So Jesus' question, I think, is the real question we leave with. Who is it that you want more? Amen. Let's take a moment before we leave here and just 
pray. Let me lead us in prayer. And as we, as we do that, I just want to ask the question, because I think Jesus asked these questions in the Bible. I think that they're repeated in the Bible because they're God's way of asking us the question. The Holy Spirit now, even to you right now, speaking to your heart. Jesus speaking into your ear, asking you this question, who is it you want? Who's the is that you want more? Because I am. I am he is. I am the source of all existence. I'm the source of all joy. I'm the source of all gladness. I'm the source of all life. There is no life apart from me. I am the one who sustains your heartbeat right now. I am the one that gives you your very breath. I am the one that holds your molecules together because I am, he is the one who is the one everywhere, infinitely, always, Present, I am never not with you 100%. I am, he is. I am the one, the only one who can fill you with everything that your heart longs for. So who is it you want? And maybe now's the only time you're going to have a chance to pray today. So let's take advantage of it. What do you want to say right now to Jesus? Say it. Jesus, we believe, we believe the witness of the Apostle John who spent his life suffering because he wouldn't stop proclaiming that he saw you rise from the dead. He spent 40 days with you after you rose from the dead. He had a conversation with you on the beach after you rose from the dead. He knows you rose from the dead. He knows it's all true. He took the time to write this, to be a witness so that us believing in your name, the I am, would have life and have it abundantly. We want your life that you died to give us to bring us into this bigger story with a resurrection of a whole creation to the glory and beauty that you created this world to have in Genesis 1 was lost in Genesis 3. We've been in bondage to the false gods all throughout Scripture and all throughout the thousands of years, but you came as the Passover land lamb to bring judgment and to take judgment from us so that you could bring us a resurrection and your resurrection with glorified bodies, bodies of beauty, bodies of power, bodies that will never die, bodies that will never cry, bodies that are in your presence forever, where the forever God is our God forever. You are more than anything else. So we lift our eyes to you and we lift up our lives with the big blue sky that you give us because you are always present as the I am forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. May the God who said, let light shine in darkness, may he make his light shine in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen.
Thanks for worshiping the I Am with us today. Have a great week.